Thank you, Kyle and team and church. Beloved, when we consider our lives from the uh, seemingly meaningless meanderings of things that might seem trivial to uh, epic world events, uh, world wars, uh, disintegration of countries, we understand that all of these across the spectrum are but specks of dust in the context of the great cosmic drama that is unfolding the way Bunyan would say, which is the battle for Mansoul. And at the center of this great cosmic drama is the incarnation, is the wonder and amazement and beauty and meaning and significance of the creator God of the universe, the second member of the Trinity, taking on a vessel of weakness of being born as a baby and living as a man and beyond. And very often we run the risk of often thinking of the incarnation just in the context of his birth. And to be sure, it does completely include that. And I myself am guilty of that at times. However, the incarnation goes far beyond just his birth. It includes his temptation, his sufferings, his death, his crucifixion, certainly his resurrection, his ascension, and even his coronation at the right hand of God the Father. Beloved, the author of the book of Hebrews writes with the incarnation in mind through the whole letter, especially in the latter part of chapter 2, which is where we find ourselves right now, this Sunday morning. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Now, through the whole letter, this author, pastor, preacher stretches our minds and he encourages our hearts by the theology, by the exhortation that he gives to us. Here in chapter 2, he reminds us that the Son became a man to let us out. He took on, again, a vessel of weakness. He partook in humanity. He didn't just stand on a cloud and shout at us or address us. He came down to earth. And beloved, what the author does in our passage this morning, which is verses 11 through 18 of chapter 2, what the author does is he defends the incarnation and he applies it in its beauty and wonder and glory and meaning to our lives. Beloved, hear the word of God. I'm going to begin in verse 10 to remind us of what came right before all the way through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, as we look at this portion of Scripture, we see there are tremendous, deep, rich theological topics. And even as I was approaching this, I thought I could, I could break this out into five, six, seven uh, different sermons easily. But what I want to do this morning is I want to take all of this in in one message and make sure we're capturing the entirety of what the author intends from this. Many of these rich topics have been dealt with in other sermon series. For example, propitiation which we see here in the text was dealt with when I preached through 1 John. So this morning we want to take a look at this beautiful text in its entirety and what we will see, we will see three roles of the Son in the incarnation. He is our brother, he is our deliverer, and he is our sympathizer. And beloved, the intent here from the author to the original Jewish audience, the intent from God to you and me is to remind us that we need a Savior who can deal with the guilt of sin, who can deal with the power of death, and deal with the trials that you and I face even today and the rest of this week. We need, in a word, a Savior who can save the sinful, who can deliver the dying, and who can help the hurting. Brother and sister, even as we would consider, brother and sister in Christ, even as we would consider the opening verse of chapter 2, where there the author warns us about the deadly danger of drift, we should realize that in Christ, in every moment, all of our decisions, we are either being drawn closer to him or we are drifting from him. We are either disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness or we're making wrong decisions. Well, Let's first look at the first role that we see of the Son in verses 11 through 13. Namely, he is our brother. He is your brother. Again, we need a Savior who can save the sinful. And what the author does here against the backdrop, this backdrop of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 18, the author is bringing out the superiority, the total and absolute superiority of the Son over angels. And what he does here in our text, especially in verses 11 through 13, against the backdrop of his superiority to the angels, he drives home his equality with you and with me a common humanity, a shared solidarity the Son has with his people. Verse 11, he says, For both he who sanctifies, the little word for there tells us, it basically says he's going to apply what he has written before. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Sanctified, those who are set apart as sacred, those who are made holy, those who are consecrated, those who are purified. And what the author is doing here is he's driving home the point of sanctification, which he threads through his whole letter. By virtue of the background, the Hebrew background from this Hebrew author to this Hebrew audience, and also by virtue of, even as Jewish believers, by virtue of the necessity of the Christian life, 
he brings out this importance of being sanctified. There is the positional sanctification. When God saved you, he set you apart as holy. You were consecrated. You were made positionally pure and holy forever and ever. And there is the process of sanctification by which we are transformed from glory to glory. And it is a topic, as I said, that he brings out elsewhere. For example, chapter 10, verse 14, the author writes of one who is offering. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Or chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus also, so that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And This context of us growing in holiness, of us becoming more like Christ. We will remember, if you were here last week, that back in verse 7, man, lowercase man, where the author brings out Psalm 8 with its original intent for the original audience of the glory and the dignity and even the rule of man as God created him. Man, lowercase man, is crowned with glory and honor back in verse 7. And The man, the uppercase man, Jesus Christ, the Son, is crowned with glory and honor in verse 9. Well, as we would think of glory and as we would think of sanctification, sanctification is glory begun and glory is sanctification completed. They tie together in the economy and plan of God. Both he who sanctifies, those who are sanctified, are all from one Father. He continues, for which reason, and amazing words, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call you brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister by virtue of what he has done. In chapter 11, verse 16, you'll read these words. God is not ashamed to be called their God. So, Beloved, God the Son is not ashamed to call you brother, not ashamed to call you sister. God the Father is not ashamed to be called your God. And what should the result of that be in the heart of a son or a daughter of the Most High God? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us an example. You may remember in Romans 1 verse 16, you remember what Paul wrote? He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation both to the Jew and to the Greek. So the Apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Woe be to us if we are ever ashamed of the gospel. Woe be to us if we would ever be ashamed of God the Father or God the Son. Because we want to ensure, even as we consider this great statement from the author of Hebrews here, that God the Son and God the Father are not ashamed of you, we need to remember who has a right to be ashamed of whom. And the straightforward answer is, we have no right, we have no privilege, we shouldn't make any allowance whatsoever of ever being ashamed of God, being ashamed of Jesus. But of course, God rightfully could be, yet in his grace, in his mercy, because of the sacrifice of Christ, he's not ashamed. Also, he says he's not ashamed to call them brethren, brothers and sisters. This tells us and reminds us that there are ties that are higher than flesh and blood. Uh, You may 
remember Jesus on his epic, on one of the epic days of Jesus' ministry, on the day, for example, when the nation of Israel committed the unpardonable sin of attributing the miraculous powers of Jesus to Beelzebul. It's the same day when he was teaching in a house where there's a group of men who dug a hole in the roof and lowered a paralytic so that he could come into Jesus because the crowd was so overflowing and so packed in, that's what they had to do. And there was a portion during that day when his mother and his brothers and sisters came to him and the people around him said to him, your family is waiting outside for you. And do you remember what Jesus said in response? Mark 3, verse 33, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. So what he was doing was he was shifting from the biological family to the true, the ultimate family, the spiritual family. Now, don't misunderstand this. In, of course, no way, shape, or form did Jesus undermine or shirk away from the responsibility he had towards his biological family. One of the words that he uttered from the cross was a word of care and concern for his mother, Mary. When he told John, he said, behold your mother, and he told Mary, behold your son, basically entrusting his mother, Mary, into the care of John. So Jesus emphasized perfectly, wonderfully, the importance of biological family, but the importance, the ultimate priority is the spiritual family of God, and that's why He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Now, we had seen back in verses 5 through 10 that man, as part of God's original intent for man, is neither inherently nor ultimately inferior to angels. Again, the broader picture and message of 1.4 through 2.18 is the infinite superiority of the Son to angels. But what we saw in verses 5 through 10 is that even man, as we were created in, with God's intent, are not inferior to angels. And one of the things that we bring out here that drives us home is Jesus never calls angels brethren. He never calls them brother. Men, yes. Women, yes. Angels, no. And mark this. Jesus never before the cross called his disciples, his children, brothers. Sheep, yes. Friends, yes. Disciples, yes. Brethren, no, until the cross. And in fact, one of the first things that he said after the resurrection, when godly Mary came to him in John 20, verse 17, Jesus told Mary, go to my disciples? No, go to my, she said, go to my brethren. So one of the first words that came from the resurrected man, Jesus, was declaring us as his brethren. Why is this? Beloved, because, dear friend, because the cross is necessary for us to become his brothers and sisters. Our brotherhood begins at his resurrection. But Continue in verse 12 here in Hebrews chapter 2. Saying, present tense again, God's word is speaking right here, right now. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is a quote from Psalm 22. We did our public reading of scripture before from Psalm 22. The first 21 verses, again, is a tremendous lament of mourning. With verse 1 of where Jesus cried out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But then in verse 22, he moves from the mourning of separation and God's righteous judgment to the praise and thanksgiving for God's future good work. And that's where he quotes here, verse 22, right out of that well-known messianic psalm. Beloved, what David was talking about in Psalm 22, verse 22, and what the author of Hebrews is picturing here is this is the son leading his brothers, his sisters, his children, his people in praise and worship. So, we know from 1 Peter that, and we shepherds, we who are blessed to be elevated by God to a position of being a pastor, an elder, a shepherd at any level of the people of God. We know that Jesus is the chief shepherd, the way Peter calls him. He is also the chief, the primary worship leader. He is our chief shepherd. He is our prime worship leader. And that is what is taking place. That is what will take place forever and ever in heaven. And that is part of what we enjoy even a taste of here in our new life in Christ, even corporately as a local body. But then look at verse 13. He says, and again. So there are three quotes that he does in verses 12 and 13. One quote from Psalm 22, and then two quotes from Isaiah 8, verse 17, and Isaiah 8, verse 18. And even the language that the author uses here, he breaks that out into three quotes. So this is the second one. And again, I will put my trust in him. And this is a quote from Isaiah 8, verse 17. Now, both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 are tied together in thought. And what the author does here is he brings them together. Both Psalm 8 and Isaiah 8, in the original context, were describing man, lowercase man, in the original Old Testament writing. But they're applied here to the man, the Son, Jesus Christ. The context for Isaiah was he, if you go back to Isaiah 8 and read the entire chapter, Isaiah was rejected by those to whom he came. But despite that rejection, he maintained his trust in God and he maintained his fidelity and hope that he would eventually be vindicated by God's good judgment. So also the point here is the son in his humanity trusted God as father and trusted in his future vindication, even through his temptation, even through his suffering, even through his death. And then at the end of verse 13, we get the third quote. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And that's where in Isaiah, we just move to the next verse, but the author brings it out as a third quote here. And what Isaiah was doing back in his original context was as he was waiting patiently upon the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. He knew that even though from his human perspective right there at the time, he didn't see how it could come about that all of God's good promises to the nation of Israel would materialize. Yet, he was trusting God and he was, Isaiah the prophet, was looking at his two sons and his two sons had two rich Hebrew names with rich meaning behind them where basically his two sons were a representation of God's future promise to Israel of the faithful remnant that would come about from there but what the author is doing here is he's applying that to Jesus the man and we can ask the question what comes after Isaiah chapter 8 
good answer, Isaiah chapter 9. And so even as we read these words from Isaiah where he was applying them to himself, we know that even then they feed into the great messianic prophecy that we see in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child will be born, and the government of the world will rest upon his shoulders. Mighty Father, uh, Emmanuel he was called back in Isaiah 7, 14. The King of kings, the Prince of Peace. But here, beloved, as Christ in his role as our brother, he says brethren. He'll say children. And, and verses 11 through 18 here of Hebrews chapter 2 is very personal. Even as he's given this rich theology and doctrine surrounding the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it's very personal, it's very familial, very family-oriented. Three times he says brethren. Twice he says children. And he says the people once all in the context of our common humanity and our shared solidarity, not merely with one another, but with Jesus Christ himself. And I like what Alistair Begg, he gave kind of a picture and illustration. He said, imagine, he said, imagine Jesus coming down. He said, imagine him coming down to Parkside Church in Cleveland. We have some uh, transplanted uh, beloved brothers and sisters. Uh, we'll do this in the context of Santan Bible Church. Imagine Jesus coming down to Santan Bible Church, going from person to person, saying, come, come here, come here, and then turning around and the son looking up to the father, saying, here I am at Santan Bible Church, here with the children you, God, have given me. That's the way in which the author applies this part of Isaiah. And then I'll quote Beg directly here. Now, of course, this talks about Parkside. It would never apply to Santan Bible Church. But what he said is, what a motley bunch we are. Stumbling, bumbling, faltering, sinning, carping, criticizing, griping, singing, not singing, liking the music, not liking the music. And by the way, it's very interesting. Any pastor, anytime you try to remove yourself from preaching, but every now and then you can just read it and you just kind of know what's going on behind the scenes. But in any event... Uh, liking the music, not liking the music, bunch of hoodlums. And he says, Jesus says, here I am and the children God has given me, end quote. Now, beloved, you've heard me say many, many times before, I don't deserve Santan Bible Church. I love Santan Bible Church. But what a blessing and a reminder is for us, despite those times when we might be disappointed, we might be feel slighted or whatever the case may be, since this is how Christ views us as his children, how much more should we love and enjoy and exercise the loving one another and all the one another's that God commands us in Scripture in the local body of Christ. So, beloved, the Son is our brother. The second role that we see here in the text in verses 14 through 16 is he is our deliverer. So not only do we need a Savior who can save the sinful, but we need a Savior who can deliver the dying. Because we know from human experience, and we know, more importantly, from the word of Scripture, that wherever there's sin, death is inevitable. And beloved, Jesus, the Son, came to save the human race of the first Adam by becoming the last Adam, the second Adam. The Son came to die to remove the curse so that man, so that you and I could regain our Psalm 8 dominion and dignity and glory and honor. As we even see in verse 7, Beloved, He delivers us out of the bondage of dread 
and he delivers us into the freedom of joy, the supernatural joy that God blesses and gives his children. Look at verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. The children share in flesh and blood. Koinoneo, the, the word koinonia, fellowship. And the grammar that the author uses here describes how we share in flesh and blood together, literally in blood and flesh together on an ongoing basis. But the grammar says that he partook of the same in a historical one-time event. And Jesus, we know from chapter 1, is God's final word. After God had spoken in various and sundry ways in the past, Jesus is God's final word. And this message that is Jesus, this message that even the author brings here, is not sent from some distant planet. But it came from one who partook of blood and flesh. What if God, friend, what if God became one of us? That's why for example, we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the context of the role of the Son as our deliverer, how does He deliver us as brought out by the author here? It is not by His life. It's not by his miracles. It's not by his example. It's not even by his teaching. To be sure, we can only be delivered from death by understanding his teaching, but that's not where the author focuses. No, he delivers us by his death. Three times in verses 14 and 15, you see the word death. This is, as Owen said, the death of death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. You see, Death is the great and inexorable destroyer, and he who has the power of death in his control holds the power of destruction, which we know from Scripture and we know from experience that Satan has that, the devil has that for a time. 1 John 5, 19, he's the lowercase god of the world. The Commentator F.F. F. Bruce had this to say, and what Bruce was talking about, he was talking about this passage in the context of what things looked like from a human perspective at the death of Christ at that time. This is what Bruce wrote. He said, if ever a course was lost, it was his. If ever the powers of evil were victorious, it was then. And yet, within a generation, his followers were exultingly proclaiming the crucified Jesus to be the conqueror of death and asserting, like our author here, that by dying he had reduced the erstwhile lord of death to impotence. The keys of death and Hades were henceforth held firmly in Jesus' powerful hand. For he, in the language of his own parable, had invaded the strong man's fortress, disarmed him, bound him fast, and robbed him of his spoil, end quote. And beloved, what we see here as we continue with the rest of verse 14 and 15 is that Jesus vanquishes two principal enemies, the devil and death. The first principal enemy, the devil. So that, purpose statement, so that, the middle of verse 14, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Diabolos, the slanderer, the accuser. The devil is a liar. He's an accuser, a deceiver, and a destroyer. 
He would give us dirt for diamonds. Yet, in God's sovereignty, death is the current dark reality of his tyranny. But even though the devil has that for a short time, beloved, dear friend, God is still supreme in his sovereignty. Death is not some sphere that is broken loose from the command of God. God is sovereign even over death. And I love what Stephen Sharnock said. He said, the devil means to be a destroyer, but for the believer, God turns him into a polisher. God turns him into a polisher. The devil would seek to destroy, but by virtue of the deliverance we enjoy in Christ, the worst plans, nefarious schemes of the enemy turn into a polishing effect for us. Beloved, I can think in my life of two periods where there was tremendous polishing underway. But beloved, one thing also, even as, again, we would remember the overall context of Christ's superiority to angels, most of the angels that we've talked about so far and that we'll talk about here in a moment are holy angels. But remember, Satan is a spirit being. He's an angelic being. He was the original fallen angel. And as such, the, what we have is a salvation that is not just a release from sin, it's a complete deliverance from the bondage of this spirit being with finite power who is futile in his rebellion. And the power, beloved, that the devil presently wields is the power by which, for God's glory and in the plan of God, he will ultimately be destroyed. Because creation and destruction and salvation from destruction absolutely, ultimately, always fall and belong to God and God alone. And that's why God the Son is able to render powerless the devil. To render powerless. This describes total destruction. That word translated render powerless describes total destruction by a superior force of an inferior force. John the Apostle in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 8, wrote, the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose so that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's the same theology as the author of Hebrews is bringing out to you and me to stretch our minds and to encourage our hearts. And beloved, even as the same beautiful song we sang, the first song we sang, I saw the light. In the same way that light vanquishes and dispels darkness, so also the sun vanquishes and dispels the devil. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1 verse 13, he said, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. And Paul adds something there. He says, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Beloved, he is our brother. He is our deliverer. Back here in verse 15 of Hebrews 2, continuing the purpose statement, and that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So he doesn't just vanquish the devil. He vanquishes death and even the fear of death. And by the way, when it says we're subject to, that word literally means guilty and deserving. This isn't some kind of innocent person that's under the subjection of the fear of death. There's a culpable element to this. Uh, the same word is used by James in James 2.10 where James wrote, whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become what? Guilty of them all. 
And that same word guilty is there. So we are guilty in our subjection to the fear of death and to death. But Christ delivers us. What about the unsaved person? What about the evolutionist, the humanist, the atheist? The 20th century English playwright Noel Coward, and that really is his last name, he had the famous quote where he said, my past depresses me, my present bores me, and the future scares me to death. Beloved, for one that is outside, one that doesn't understand this true and only deliverance, poor, wretched, blind, helpless, and hopeless, but, but he might deliver those. He will deliver those who are his. He will set them free, liberate, emancipate, release them. What that means is it means we are delivered from hopelessness and we're delivered from helplessness. And we're not just rescued from what we deserve. That's the mercy of God. We're also rescued into that which we don't deserve, which is the grace of God. We're delivered from the dark and desolate plains of foolish speculation into the sun-bathed land of true knowledge. This means we're delivered out of the miserable dungeon of bondage into the magnificent palace of emancipation and liberty and freedom in Christ. And what this means is, even when we consider death itself, the Christian, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. John Chrysostom, the great 4th century expository preacher, Golden Mouth, he made the observation that there were many Christians that were lamenting and mourning as those with no hope. They were lamenting death just in the same way that the heathens around them mourned them. And this is what Chrysostom said about that. He said, when I behold the wailing in public places, the groanings over those who have departed this life, the howlings and all other unseemly behavior, again, on the part of professing Christians, he says, I'm ashamed before the heathen and heretics who see this, and indeed before all who for this reason laugh us to scorn. And then he gives a final exhortation. He says, may God grant that you and I all depart this life unwailed. Not as those who have no hope, but rather as those who have hope. Because, beloved, for the believer, death is the gateway into God's presence. Into the culmination and fulfillment of where our faith becomes sight. Beloved, the deliverance that Christ brings to you as your deliverer is the smile of God reflected in the heart of a redeemed sinner. It's the shelter in the storm. It's the hiding place under his wings. It's the rainbow around the throne, which is a refuge from the thunderstorms of life and the trials and temptations even of today and this week. So he is our brother. He is our deliverer. Finally, the third role in verses 17 and 18 is he is our sympathizer. Because we need a Savior that can save the sinful. We need a Savior that can deliver the dying. And we need a Savior who can help the hurting. And when I say hurting here, I'm not talking about hurting from emotional slights or from betrayals or from circumstance. I'm talking about the hurt, the harm of temptation, which each of us as new creatures in Christ Jesus face all the time. And We've already seen that as we look at Hebrews and realize this entire sermonic letter is bringing out the absolute, total, infinite superiority of Christ as the better mediator, as the better word of God, as the better covenant, the better blood, 
uh, the better sacrifice, that the old covenant was mediated by what? We saw before the old covenant was mediated by angels. But the new covenant is mediated by the Son and received by men. And what we have here in verses 16 through 18 is the author brings out a main theme, a central tenet of the whole book, which is namely Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is, in this, our sympathetic high priest. Verse 16, look at what it says. For assuredly he does not give help to angels. So we're back to angels. We're back to the comparison of angels. And we understand that after God's own glory, even as we saw in verses 5 and 6 here, that God's purposes were always, after his own glory, were towards man first and foremost, not towards angels. We know, for example, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that even as Christ right now is seated at the right hand of Father, we are presently, currently seated with him in the heavens. Nowhere in Scripture do you get any indication the angels are ever seated at the right hand of the Father or seated with Christ. No angel we know from everything we've read so far, no angel is Savior. The Son is Savior. Also, no angel is saved. There's no redemption. There's no salvation. There's no possibility for the fallen angels, for demons. The Son did not come to redeem angels. He came to redeem men and women. That's why he says, assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And the word, the Greek word translated gives help to twice there literally means to take hold of someone by the hand firmly, to draw one to yourself to help them. Uh, the same word is used, for example, when Jesus took a blind man by the hand. Math, excuse me, Mark 8, verse 23. Taking the blind man by the hand, same word, he brought him out of the village. Or in Luke 14, verse 4, there was a certain man with dropsy that Jesus took hold of him and healed him. He gave help to him. That's the kind of intimate language the author is saying here with the intent of the redemption, the intent of Christ being the high priest. He uses the same word the author of Hebrews does in chapter 8, verse 9. God the Father is speaking, and he says, like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So when God rescued and redeemed and delivered Israel from the captivity of Egypt, God the Father gave help to them. He took them by the hand and led them out of that captivity as part of his promise to the nation of Israel. And that is part of the backdrop of what the author is bringing here, which points to the fact that the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of the old covenant promises. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant sacrificial system. And even when we trace it all the way back to the original promise God gave to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 2, God told Abram that your seed, your descendants, will be like what? They'll be like the sand on the seashore, like stars in the sky. So when it talks about being a descendant of Abraham, when 
the author is writing to this group of Jewish believers. They understand a physical aspect of that, but the broader, more important is the spiritual family of God, which all of us, Jews and Gentiles together, we are part of this vast, innumerable company of redeemed people. In I mentioned previously last week that we won't be like a tiny little group of elect huddled in some corner of this vast universe. No, like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky is what is here. Verse 17, therefore, therefore, he's going to apply it. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. It might make us think of Paul's great statement in Philippians 2, where he describes Christ being emptying, emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. That is Paul's point in Philippians 2. That's the author of Hebrews' point here. And he continues, verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And this is where the author first brings out that great central theme of the book, Jesus as our high priest. It's interesting when you look at the New Testament after the Gospels and after the Acts of the Apostle, the word priest only appears in a singular form once in Romans 15 and 26 times here in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is the only New Testament book which explicitly describes Jesus as priest. Uh, John Calvin had this to say about the importance of Christ as our high priest. This is what Calvin wrote. He said, there is indeed no other book in Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly to the priesthood of Christ, which so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death, which so abundantly deals with the use of ceremonies as well as their abrogation, their ending, and in a word so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law, end quote. Or, more to the better point, God says through Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 is kind of one summary verse of the entire book. You read these words. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Beloved, he is our sympathetic high priest. He is our sympathizer. But the author continues with the point of his purpose to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make propitiation, to quench the holy righteous anger of God. If you think of the atonement of Christ, the atonement, there's really two elements. There's the expiation of our sin, which is the removal, the putting away, putting aside our sin. And there is the propitiation, which is the quenching, the appeasing of God's holy anger, of satisfying the just punishment that is due our sin. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, had these words to describe the significance of what it meant for Jesus to quench the wrath of God that is due you and is due me because of our sin. This is what Edwards preached. He said, paraphrased, 
Jesus plunged into the bottomless gulf of the glowing flames of the lake of burning brimstone on your behalf. The black clouds of God's wrath burst forth and poured out their fury on him on the cross. The rough winds unleashed their fury on him like a whirlwind. God withdrew his hand from the floodgate, holding back the great waters of his wrath amassed for you. And they rushed forth with inconceivable fury and came upon him at Calvary in your place. The bent bow of God's mighty wrath was released and the arrows of God's angry justice went flying into his flesh and were made drunk with his blood rather than yours. End quote. Beloved, this propitiation that the Son does on your behalf, on my behalf, enables God to be both the just and the justifier. And it had to be done this way. It had to be done this way. At the beginning of verse 17, you see those words. It had to be. There was no option B. There was no second door. Beloved, in order to both satisfy the justice of the holy God and to publicly display the mercy of the gracious God, it had to be done this way because God is always consistent with his own character. You may have heard the question, somebody might ask it sometime, well, did it really have to happen that way? Did he really have to be born as a baby? Did he have to suffer the way he did at the cross? And the answer from the text is, yes, it had to be done this way. It couldn't be done any other way because the straightforward answer is that the death of Christ is not the only way to have the death of death, but it is the, it is the best, so it's not, the only, it's not only the best way, it's the only way the death of death and the death of Christ is the best and only way it could be done. It had to be this way. And I thought of this in our last men's Bible study on Thursday morning. Scott Mom, as he was leading us, was talking about sometimes people will object to certain biblical characterizations of God and say, they'll say, well, I don't want to put God in a box. And I thought Scott's answer is brilliant. That they didn't, he didn't get that question in, and he was talking about the scenario. God's answer is, well, well, we don't want to put God in the box, but we want to keep God in Scripture. We want to keep our understanding of God as the God of Scripture. So it had to be done this way. Finally, after we have this great gospel summary in verses 11 through 17, we come to the great gospel promise in verse 18. The great gospel summary will get us through our life. This great gospel promise in verse 18, beloved, will get you and me through today and through the rest of this week. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beloved, because his suffering was infinitely special, so also his temptation was infinitely special. You may have some temptations that I don't suffer. I may suffer temptations you don't suffer. But the son was tempted in all things. He took on all the temptations of all of humanity, and he bore it yet without sin. That's why the author will say, in chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Beloved, that means as our brother, as our deliverer, as our sympathizer, he delivers us from the guilt of sin. He delivers us from the penalty of sin, and he 
in a sympathetic manner delivers us from the bondage of sin. And in your day-to-day temptations and trials, in my day-to-day temptations and trials, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses at every level. That is what the author intends there at the end of verse 18. And to finish up, I want to just read one last quote from Augustine. Even as we have read read these words and understand how God applies the beauty and wonder and richness and meaning of the incarnation and the glory of the incarnation to our lives, let's finish with just considering what this means for Jesus Christ, for the Son. Augustine said this, The word of the Father by whom all time was created, was made flesh, and was born in time for us. He, without whose divine permission no day completes its course, wished to have one day set aside for his human birth. The maker of man became man, so that he who is the ruler of the stars might be nourished at his mother's breast, so that he, the bread, might hunger, so that he, the fountain, might thirst so that he the light might sleep that he the way might be wearied by the journey that he the truth might be accused by false witnesses that he the judge of the living and dead might be brought to trial by a mortal judge that he justice might be condemned by the unjust that he discipline might be scourged with whips that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that courage might be weakened, that healer might be wounded, that life might die. And Augustine finished with these words. To endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us, unworthy creatures, he who existed as the Son of God before all ages, without a beginning, chose to become the Son of Man in these recent years. He did this, although he who submitted to such great evils for our sake had done no evil, and although we who were the recipients of so much good at his hands had done nothing to merit these benefits, end quote. Beloved, this is amazing grace. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you. Lord, as we consider the, who you are, as we consider what you have done, as we consider the purpose for your glory and even for our glory and our honor, we are so unworthy, but we rejoice, Lord God, in the great work you're doing in each of our lives individually, the great work you're doing in Santan Bible Church, and the great work you're doing in all of your children around the world. Lord God, help us to be encouraged, to be motivated, to be purified, to be sanctified more and more, to excel yet more as we worship you, as we love one another, and as we reach out with the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, we sing, we do all these things. Amen.